I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Tell Me The Score. Today I'm joined by composer Erilyn Wallen's CBE. Born in Belize and brought up in London, Erilyn is now at the forefront of the British contemporary music scene. She's the winner of an Ivan Novello Award and recently featured as BBC Radio 3's Composer of the Week. Erilyn joins me from her lighthouse overlooking the North Sea where she lives and works. She talks very openly about her childhood and her upbringing and how she found her love of composition. Despite some broadband gremlins, which I think are pretty common in the North Scottish Highlands, it's a really frank and interesting conversation. Erin is brilliant and funny, as always. I hope you enjoy it. My life is a bit mad at the moment. Can you believe it? I'm trying to finish two operas and a book. It's too much. You know, it's, it's, but I, I've just recently got into a new way of dealing with it, which is really good. I'm trying it out. I got so tired of being stressed. I thought, actually... Don't give stress one moment. Just do the thing that you have to do, even if it's just five minutes of it. Don't let stress divert you. But I've always been a multitasker, but sometimes you can't. You know, you just have to do, you have to do the composing. But what I find is because I'm getting more and more well-known, the demands that that come upon me, it's related to music, but not necessarily. So if you're writing an opera, you you always forget to factor in all the millions of um, those other things that need doing. Yes. There's always, everything's always extra. But it's the same in your life, isn't it? Everything's always extra. Yeah, there's always too much. Um, and, and on the occasions when there isn't enough, that's sort of really stressful in a different way. So, I, I, I mean, either you, can, either you can embrace the stress or you can let it yeah. kill you. And, you have to, and it, you have to understand that um, why I'm pleased is because I'm writing music that's actually going to be performed. And so many people, you know, close friends of mine, as talented, it's it's not always easy. So I'm, it's lucky stress I have. It's not. Well, I mean, there is some natural justice in the music business in that, you, you know, talented people do rise to the top, but but lots of people who with lots yeah, of talent lots of don't. And it's, I think so. and it's very unfair. Yeah. You must know that in our field, I think about this a lot. In our field, um, often the m- most talented people might have some something of a personality disorder. They just maybe don't like people, or they come across as rude and. You know, all those surface details can can impede you a bit, can't they? Oh, definitely. I mean, there are times when I, if I could take, you know, 20 years ago, if I could go back and behave differently, there are so many yeah. occasions which I would completely change. Yeah. I'd have just said, yeah. yes, fine, I'll do it. I wouldn't have made a fuss about the <laughs> the crappy dressing room, the sharing a bedroom, the, you know, you'd have just said, let's make the best of it instead of letting your ego get in the way, you know. Mind you, though, people do get taken advantage of. So nice to see you. I wish we could play together more. I, 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 I'm longing to get back into playing again. And you're in, you're in Scotland now, right? I am. I'm going to show you where I am. It's a very grey day here, though. Can you see? Amazing. Can you see it? Can you see? Tom, That's gorgeous. 
isn't it? I know. I wanted to start by talking really about about very early. So you were born in Belize, which I, when we yeah. met and played together, I, I hadn't known. And and how much of an effect has that had on you? Was it a musical upbringing? Do you know, to what gives me quite a lot of joy is my, my parents said that I was such a happy baby. And they said that they just, I sort of never cried. And I never, they said that if, if I was, they'd wake up and I'd be awake in my cot, but I would never be crying for attention. And they said that they remember, and this has been when I was about, before I was two, they said they won, they woke up one day and I was singing, um, when I fall in love, it will be forever. But I'm thinking, I mean, that those are mad intervals, aren't they? But that means my parents were singing those songs. That's what it yeah, means. Yeah. My dad had a great uh, singing voice and he wrote songs. He, yeah. he uh, did lots of different things, but very, very musical. Both parents f- extremely responsive to m- music. You know, it's very important to them. But they uh, they weren't professional musicians, but they, um, they, we came to London when I was about, t- I was about two years old. But was... I think by then, yeah, it was a very topsy-turvy childhood in one sense in that my parents came over to London and we stayed with my, an uncle and an aunt. But then my dad went to New York, I think. He went studying Trinidad, then New York. And then my mum, by the time I was about six, she went to live in New York, where we have a massive extended family. But we stayed behind. We were going to be sent for, but it, it never really worked out. But then after that, we would spend, say, summers with them. But it was a very uh, strange childhood in that we were sort of in limbo. But a happy one? Um, uh, happy, let me think. I mean, I've, I think I've always had this quite happy disposition, which is what is useful to me through life. But I think we, I think we were all a bit disturbed by it. And we were, even to this day, I'll talk to my brother and we'll, we'll say we don't quite understand it, didn't mean it. It meant that we, uh, we were brought up by people who loved us very much and we loved them, but they were in a, they lived in fear that we'd be taken away from them. Do you see what I mean? It was never, it was never clear. And w- what came first for you, dancing or music? Because you danced to a high level, right? Dancing, dancing. When you say high level, I just loved it. I was passionate about it. And then I worked out that I should try and go to a specialist school. I had a friend called Janice Kent, and we would sit looking at pictures of dancers. But I like, I love looking at, you know, the shapes bodies could make. But also, I was better at ballet in our dancing, little dancing school. I loved ballet, but I when I look back, I think, like I remember the day the pianist, there was a different pianist that played one day and she was playing Chopin and suddenly I was thinking, what the hell is that music? And then I went home and that's when I found Radio 3. I think I must find that music again to play it. And then my dad took to sending us some um, vinyl records. It was called Lives of the Great Composers and there'd be Chopin, there'd be Bart, there'd be um, who else was there in there? It a woman would be narrating, especially for children, and you'd have little snippets of things, you know, moonlight sonata and uh, preludes and things. And that sort of went into my head in terms of uh, the idea of these composers living these, you know, very, not romantic, but very charged lives. And that was part of it. But I was I was just too busy soaking up things. At school I played violin, I was so bad at it. And uh, but I, w- I wasn't actually sent to piano lessons until I was nine. But the minute, but I had a I had a cousin who came to London, and then she went over to the states. But I remember a teacher at school. So when I was in primary school, a teacher coming up to me and saying, "Your cousin should really be going to should be going should be going to you know 
uh, what do you call it, junior conservatoire, because she's really good. And but that's what I'm saying. Our family didn't really, and and I, and I was would have been young, but she told me that. Now, but that same cousin taught me where all the notes were on the piano. So by the time I was going to piano lessons, I sort of somehow knew new stuff and we had also i went to school we brought up in Tottenham, and we had this so i would have been at this school i'd have been about nine years old then and we had this teacher she was the head of music but she was also the head of our class and every single child who taught us all to read and write music made it fun and introduced us to orchestral music so she played things like for coffee of lieutenant kije and then i wrote something for that class to play and made up a piece Frogs and Toads, but nobody said anything. But but that actually was my first composition. I I couldn't read or write very well, but I knew what everybody had to do, and that was been about twenty twenty five kids. So some played the percussion, some played the piano, some somebody spoke. And I, I was going to say that there's usually one great teacher who who kicks you off or recognizes something, and or maybe a parent even was that the teacher who opened it up for you? Or do you know what I really love about her looking back. Because, you know, since, you know, I've been a professional composer, I've gone into workshops. For example, I remember doing a workshop with um, kids from Slough and ki- kids from Slough. Some were from a, from a grammar school and some were from the school that was considered, you know, in special measures. And I noticed the way the grammar school teacher had already earmarked the students. She said, oh, the, these are the special ones. And it was because they, they'd done grades and they could play their instruments. Yeah. And I remember, I remember thinking, thank goodness, Miss Beale wasn't like that to our class. It wasn't about picking out people. She might have identified I was gifted, but she, uh, no fuss was made. But I liked the way every single kid, like Neville Hendricks, who's the big, tough, tough, tough. We all just learned to read and write music. And it wasn't seen as a odd thing. We just loved her and we, she made it fun. She would draw figures on the clefts. It was her personality, just very straightforward and good. And so when did you move to New York then? Because you went back to study, didn't you? Yeah. I never actually have ever properly, properly sort of had a home there. I wish I could live there. But um, I had a difficult... So I went to boarding school from the age of about 13 to 17. And that was because I wanted to go to a specialist ballet school. And then my aunt and uncle said, we do, we've not seen any black ballet dancers. You just can't do that. And I was really... Honestly, I was so... It's like my world had fallen apart. So they said, but we'll send you, my mum did actually send you to this boarding school and then they were supposed to do ballet, but they only were doing half hour lessons a week, which was worse than what I'd had in Tottenham. So then I I just did, I just sort of played and played the piano for comfort. And that, that's when, it was actually that at school, that's when the, the music teachers, everybody suddenly said, oh, we've got a musical girl in the school. And until that point, I had no idea. But you see, I, my thing had always been dance, but music, I was always doing it, but it was not not what I wanted to do. So when I left that school, and I sort of left before the second year of the A-levels, which meant I had to be stuck at home in Tottenham, sort of going to sort of private tutors. It was horrible. And I even did my A-levels in um, our front room because I was in working to a different syllabus than that school. And that was a very hard year for me. I got very isolated and sort of, went a bit bonkers I think and then I decided to um suddenly I thought I have to go back to dancing and that's when I had intensive lessons at the Erdang Academy uh, in London and then I I I do I think I went to a summer school at the Dancers of Harlem and then that autumn I I stayed there for I think three months that yeah in, in my year off I stayed there and just had you know lessons but that was a revelation because Dancers of Harlem was a was the first sort of black ballet ballet company 
But you didn't carry on, and why was that? I I wondered if it might be injury. No, um, I found a course in London. It's called dance and dance and music, which just seemed made for me, and it was um, part of Goldsmiths. And I thought this is the answer to my dreams. I can do both because it was you know music was a huge part. Uh, and then when I went to to that college, I'd already been had a whole you know we're talking about classes every day, three or four classes every day. Um, being taught by really people like good people like Tanikul the clerk who who um, had been married been married to Balanchine can you imagine so the, really it was incredible and Arthur Mitchell he'd been in New York City Ballet it just oh it's incredible but I, I mean I wasn't I, I'd already decided that I would be in contemporary dance because it was too late to be a you know ballet dancer didn't mean my friends who are ballet dancers they, they start little and they just live in dance you know what I mean it's it was too late but I mean, maybe that's for longevity in a career. That might have been a good thing for you, right? I mean, so- well, I love eating so much. I mean, <laughs> the thing is, I really had this feeling for dance, and I still have it. Where if I'm writing music, and I just don't know what to do, I just feel the motion of it. I, I can, to me, dance and music—they, that feeling of motion and patterns and space—is still very important to me. But I would have stayed on that course, and then I realised. After a year, I thought I either have to join because I could have joined a, it's like professionally say contemporary dance company. Because so I think I got a place in national youth, some some dance company. Anyway, it just was really low level, and that it was low level of music as well. It was, and I was very very interested in contemporary music. So after that, I said, right, I'm just going to just study music. By that time, I was playing ten hours a day and practicing, practicing, and so then I thought, yeah, I'll just um, just do music because that that's what was naturally doing I was watching myself I just just wanted to play and how how do you find the change between playing and then the discipline of sitting down and being completely on your own and having to write because playing you've got people around you a lot of the time no but as a pianist you're totally alone and what happened with the same thing with the piano you know, when you don't know anything I I had to find everything out myself like where to go to university where to how to, how to find before this you know i'd had lessons with a great teacher called edith vogel and she had said to me come i can get you into Guildhall," and i would have been headed down that route but even then i, I just wasn't i don't think i was i wouldn't have been good enough you know and i and i it was too i just couldn't have played the standard repertoire because there's just too much it's been done so much and so much better by other pianists and um, do you find that that sort of ice the isolation of a pianist or a you know the, the the isolation of a I guess a dancer who has to stay fit on their own. There's a lot of isolation in those crafts that yeah. you need to hone. I mean, yeah. you now. I mean, you're sitting in a lighthouse in the Scottish Highlands. <laughs> I mean, it's very. There's very little difference between lockdown, I guess, up there than no, yeah. your normal life. Is that presumably it's paradise for you being on your own <laughs> and is, being able to write? I'll tell you something that uh, I was going to say that. Um, um, there's something different when you're playing when you're practicing alone somehow the sounds all around you so i've always felt very cozy like that i've not felt lonely but there's something about writing music by yourself where you've got to originate everything and you've got to sort of go to place quite deep and i i, str- I have struggled with that over the years because you just don't want to go there do you know what i mean it's you have to make so many decisions you've got to make and sometimes you don't even so starting is difficult and then and then those first efforts are usually really banal and useless so then trying to talk yourself around to make something good out of you know what are sketches um 
but I would say being up here, I think it's the silence that I love very much, you know. And also, I'm, I got this place thinking this is the place to work. Um, and then I'm going to be in London, you know. I'll, I'll be with people all next week, next couple of weeks. So it's like it's parceled out. So I can work here. It's very good for intense, intense work. And I do feel the pressure to work here because it's also just waste. You know, I feel like I'm wasting the, the fantastic. Um, it's just the perfect place for me. Um, I really. I, it took me years to realise that the true silence, is, is not a lonely place. It's when you've got bits of noise or you're in a, or you've got lots of distraction. I find that very unsettling. And do you find if you if you get to a stage where you're finding it difficult to write, how do you solve that when you're on your own? You're totally self-reliant. Nobody's there. You don't have a coach to tell you, try this, try that. You've got to, I mean, what, do you open the window? Do you go out for a walk? What? How, how do you solve your, your blocks when they come? Yeah, what do I do? I have learnt, you know, and I learnt it, uh, uh, it was after university, you know, just to, you'd have, to, you'd have the Errol in the composer, then you'd have the Errol in the sort of, sort of housekeeper slash, the person keep you on track that just just um you know the, the worrying this is the hardest thing being a musician i think is that whatever you do you know it's never enough so that is the hardest thing so you've got to accept that but so what i do is i think i must do so many hours a day and i set the clock but nothing can stop you thinking about problems so i i'm accepting that things like sleep walk you know a walk they all help the brain as it's working things out the work the brain is a fantastic computer you, you just got to let it it's quite good to pose a problem work on it and i don't if i if i get stuck i just i'll quickly do something else and I come back so I, I i'm quite disciplined in making myself continue and i'm very prolific and i'm very um i write very quickly but the slow bit is when you have to refine it and make it really ready for the world i wondered the first thing that i played of yours it's ages ago but we did when I'm laid in earth, do you remember that? Yeah, um, and and do you find that sometimes having something else to bounce off is 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 quite a good way to get going, or is it just that you love Purcell and you want to reshape oh. it? Or I mean, not that that's why you wrote that arrangement, but does it sometimes help to work on something that already exists as a as a starting point? Yes, and in fact, you know, I wrote an opera that uh, last this year, which was. Dido, yeah. Yeah, Dido's Ghost. And in a way, that song, without knowing it, it, it is one of the greatest stories in the world when I'm laid in there. By composing, you can engage with that material very, very directly. And I feel as if I, you sort of come close to that composing. And do you know what you realise? that You realise that the more you, for example, that's the perfect aria, and you think it's got all the hallmarks of personal, but why is that the big hit and other things less so? And you realise it's that, there is a bit of an accident to it as well, where you, you can set up the same technique, you know, uh, a brown bass melody, of, but somehow everything aligns in that in a way that is more than just, you know, the sum of the parts. Do you think that's because it comes from character and it's, the, it's just there's a truth in it that, you know, knocks everything else out of the water because it's, she's, she's just speaking her truth, isn't she, really? Yeah, and the, the words are the right words with the right patterns, the right sound. Um, I'm writing two operas now, and it's very interesting. There's one song in the second one where everybody says, oh, wow, that's really good for that. But I know why, because the words are they're just not too many words. They're the right words, and they spark something in the composer. But, I mean, it's very simple when I'm laid in earth, but it's just, 
it's just perfect. It's perfect. And do you think of it as you taking something sacrosanct and having a bash at it, or are you? What's 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 the process there? Are you trying to augment it or just turn it into something totally new? So we'll say with Dido's Ghost particularly, is that what you want to talk about, or the, the arrangement that I made? Well, the, the principle of taking something that exists and doing something to it. it it's, a, it's like an act of homage. It's an act of um, wanting to be involved in it in a, in a different way. I, I, I don't get overawed by it. I mean, obviously I'm in great awe of Purcell, but I always imagine, and tell my students this, always imagine that music on scraps of paper with scribblings out and... I once had to write a companion piece to um, Handel's fireworks music, and I looked at the, you know, the original things. And honestly, it was just minimal information, but very scrappily laid out. And he thought, yeah, that's what, you know, we would have done it in a hurry, but he's so good at his bass lines, he's very good at his melodies, dang. And so, but he would have dashed that off. But I, I just think with the composers, they're just like that, they were always working. So they weren't precious about their work. You know what I mean? It's a different attitude. And I just... Um, I've been asked to do quite a lot working with existing pieces of music. And so with Dido's Ghost, what we wanted to do there was finish off that story. And we've done something, I suppose the most important thing is to give Aeneas within the opera. He has much more. He, in fact, he's the star of it, but he, it's him that goes on the journey. Yeah. And I was thinking just, you were saying that you'd written Dido. You've got Yo-Yo Ma and Catherine Stott playing your stuff over in, Career and it's like in Chicago next year, someone's going to do your stuff. And there's loads, I mean, you're not in control of it. And all these pieces, these little satellites have popped out and they're happening. That must be kind of an amazing sensation. I'm just still trying to understand it because when I think of, say, Yo Yo Ma, this is what I think of. I don't think of the performance. I think, oh my God, he'll be in a room somewhere thinking, oh yeah, what is that shift? Oh, does that, oh, that's not in tune. He'll be practicing. He'll be like, with the, and that's the thing I love about music. It's like every, every one of us, you've got to get grips with the actual material, the sound, the placing of the sound, whether you're a composer. So that's that's what blew my mind more than anything. But yeah, it's it's a funny old thing, isn't it? Because, but I know more and more that I, I was thinking, say if you're a celebrity, say if you're an actor or, you know, actor or what can I think? Or say a model or or reality TV person, you know, you're famous through your appearance and your sort of, you know, how you dress and everything. If you're a composer, honestly, it's just utter drudge. You've got to just, it. The it's about um, writing the music, you know? It's just that. But it must be quite flattering. I mean, yeah, let's be honest, Yo-Yo Ma isn't going to play something he doesn't want to play. You know, often we'll... I, I, I'll, do a program. Some of it might be wonderful. Some of it might not be such great stuff. But I mean, Yo-Yo Ma's not going to choose a piece to play in front of two thousand people every night unless he loves it. So that must feel. I know, but I think the thing with that story is, and this is what I remind myself of. You know that that piece was written many, many a long year ago. I don't know how old that piece is. Really old. And I remember writing the piece and thinking, I was being a bit. I was late with the piece, but I, it was a piece that sort of didn't. I couldn't quite get the hang of it, but then I wrote it. And why I wrote, why it was that way was because it was for Matthew Sharp and Dominic Harlan to play, and it was for them. And and that's what all was important. I remember they premiered at Wigmore Hall, and I thought, oh, God, it's no good. It's just no good. And then they came to record it, and I saw the devotion, you know, the, 
the preparation they put into this piece. And and that's why I love the piece. I, I think of them. So I am obviously it's fantastic year Mars play, but I, I also think about the journey of the piece through through the many cellists who've played that. Um yeah. I suppose with Matt, I mean I've worked with Matt a lot and you I mean, so for people who don't know Matt is a cellist and a singer and an actor. I mean, I don't know which comes first. I think probably the cello, but you wouldn't know it if you you wouldn't know which to pick if you met him. But there is no shortage of commitment. Someone totally, totally committed to to something that you came up with in a in a yes. room in the Scottish Highlands is is committed yeah. to transmitting it to thousands of people. It must be an extraordinary sensation. Yeah. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Yes. So, so, what I, see, so what I'm trying to say is, is that um, that's the beauty of being a musician. It's... You know, there are musicians that, you know, Yo-Yo Ma has to be the most famous cellist alive. But it would be silly if I wrote a piece thinking this piece will only work if it's written for Yo-Yo Ma. It has to be, it's out there in the world for all cellists to play. That's what, that's what's different about our world. It's, it's, it's not like you make a film and then you have that, that star and that whoever associated with that role. So it's a very, what's the word? Um being a composer is a very, you learn a lot of, particularly if you start to be successful, you start to understand even more about music making. Do you know what I mean? That the, the, the greatest players, are, you know, are humble because you keep starting again every day, you know, and you're always trying to refine something. As a composer, I'm always looking for something. I'm never satisfied. I, I wish I could, I always feel a bit restless and, you know, a bit unhappy about. So um, the other, this is the thing, I'm going off tangent a little bit, but... Um, I was thinking, why is it I don't have anything proper to listen to my music? I've made films, I've made radio programs, been up here, I've you know made recordings, and I've listened to everything in sort of dodgy headphones through my computer or on my phone. I made a film, I, the only way I could watch it was on my phone. So then I got myself a decent little sound system. It's not, nothing fancy, but so it's amazing because I can hear things. And a friend, some friends had given me a new recording of um, uh, Britain's... Um, first quartet and third quartet and divertimenti for quartet and a the sat a it sounded amazing but also i was thinking oh my god i've been wasting my life because i'll never write i'll never write a string quartet that sounds like those do you know what i mean so that's every day it's like that but doesn't everyone feel like that all the time i mean you could go down that rabbit hole in any profession surely i mean even you're doing doing the gold leaf on a ceiling somewhere. You're going to think, well, it's not the Sistine Chapel, and or, you know, there's. What I mean is, I'm always caught up short by. Um, sometimes I hear some music, I think, and I will say, do you know, Owen, and that is the standard. 
you might think you're doing well here, but the, it's just, it's always to remind, I had a really perfectionist teacher at my boarding school and whatever you did, she she was always telling you, you could do better. And so I keep it in check. But what I mean is I think it's healthy to realise that you're just part of something, you know, and um, yeah, maybe that's why I like being up here. You sort of, you get to grips with things like that. But anyway, I'm just very happy at the moment because I can, uh, and my other friend, John Butt, uh, he's just got a new CD out of um, Bark Cantatas. I listened to that. And so now I'm going to try and always listen to things on proper, proper gear. I noticed that you, you'd written something for COP26. Is yeah. it something that preoccupies you, climate change? Yes, definitely. And uh, I, I remember, uh, you know, as, even, even as a teenager, getting very anxious about things, you know. And But I also know that we have to... I just feel if we could each really, truly, truly, truly live, we wouldn't be a damaging the planet. Or, um, do you know I had a friend that was an astronaut? Have I told you that? Oh no! How wonderful! No. Yeah, it really was wonderful. And so he he'd gone up to space a couple of times, and I met him just before he was doing the second mission, and it involved a spacewalk. And he came back, and he wrote to all of us, his friends, and he said, "If I could take." every five-year-old up with me in the shuttle they would never ever want to damage the planet it's so beautiful earth is so beautiful that's just he, he kept saying that again and again so i just feel the moment we, if we could be alive and appreciate the beauty you have around us why would we want to wreck it but i see i understand that he, human beings also have this terrible destructive sort of almost like a death death wish do you know what i mean that 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 is what we have so I don't know how we reconcile that at the moment because we're at a precipice. The song I wrote was for children to sing, and that was very, that was really, really good to imagine myself as a child and thinking this song is really for them. And it turns out, it turns out they really love singing it because I, I try to write it, imagine myself as a child and what I would feel because it's the children that will that will have will be inheriting this problem. And so they'll be singing it to the the leaders of the okay, yes right and will, will you be there at all will you be there for the performance no sadly it's sad isn't it i have to be in wales you see so what's happening in my life at the moment it's never it's never happened to this point you know when you've got two offers to finish and a book you know by december i just i'm already you know it's crazy but i will zoom into them and but i found out the other day that they were actually meant to sing it at 10 downing street last week and then it then it got cancelled last minute Yes, I suspect that happens quite often. <laughs> I've, you know, I've written quite a lot of what I would call public public pieces, pieces for uh, something to mark the abolition of the slave trade. I've written quite a lot for the Queen, a couple of Jubilees and the opening of the Cutty Sark, things like that, and Paralympic Games 2012. And those things are quite scary in that you have to jump out of yourself and imagine the occasion. So I had to imagine the stadium before the stadium was really, nobody had ever been in that stadium, so I had to imagine what it was like. And then... And just that—that's it. Putting yourself in the mind of the of the performers and the imagined audience. You touched on it then, the slave trade, and I and I, I'm very cautious about mentioning it. And also, you, when you mentioned that your aunt and uncle had said, "We've never seen a, a black ballet dancer, so you can't do that." Do you feel that lives with you? I realise there's something I abs- there's something I really fundamentally got wrong as a kid, and I'm glad I got it wrong. I just thought, "I'm Marilyn. I'm going to have a life. I'm just going to do what I like, and I'm just going to explore things." I never, until that moment, I thought, oh, I can just do what I want. And the fact that an 
somebody could tell you you couldn't do something that was your heart's desire. I, I remember clocking that and thinking, right, the next thing I want to do is say I'm going to do, I'm just going to do it. I'm not actually going to ask permission, just going to do it. And that's it's the one thing that incenses me more than anything, that something as stupid as the colour of your skin could stop somebody. But it does. It stopped, it stopped thousands of people. Do you feel like, say, just the music world? Do you think things are better? I think it's a, it's a, certainly a problem in the in the bits of it that I work is that we're trying to solve a problem now that was born twenty or thirty years ago, and yeah. I, I can't go back to nineteen ninety and train all the people who wanted to train but weren't allowed. Yeah, no. so I think we're tackling it, but I think it will take it at least one. Oh, time. it will take time. But, but this is what I think. This is so. Just before I spoke to you, I had to. Uh, there's a school in Norfolk. I don't know which school, but they asked me. Could I write a few notes to the school children? And I really made a point of saying anybody can be a composer and that and that composers come from all work walks of life. And the basic things you need, you know, imagination, you know, ability to listen and, you know, not to be scared to go on an adventure with music. I think if I can if I can demystify the process in some way and it helps. I, I do meet quite a few people now say they've gone into music because of me. And so as a child, I didn't have this thing called role models. I mean, I didn't have them. And still my role models are Stravinsky and Bart. I mean, they are my role models. I'm talking about because it's that's the music. I, I'm interested in the music. So that's the music. But I, you know, I was a very shy little kid, but certainly if I wanted to do something, nothing would stop, nothing was ever going to stop me, ever. Nothing would ever stop me. But but I do see, if I'm honest, I would see there are times the door has been closed on me. But I, I don't know. I just think it's hard being a composer anyway. I'm, and I'm pleased that now we're having conversations that you nobody would think to have 20, 30 years ago. They just wouldn't, they just wouldn't think to have them. It just... You know, we accepted it, didn't we? That, and I was always told I, I'm, a, I'm a, a conductor. I really like, I really like and admire him. And, he's, and he said to me, he said, I hope you've got a good pension plan because right now you're a novelty, but, you know, that's going to wear off. So you've got to, you know, you won't, you know, you won't have a life as a composer. You're just a novelty. And, um, and that's somebody I know and admire. But that, I understand that is, that's what the classical music, um, that, that's the edifice of it. That's the foundation of it. But things are changing, and I think they're changing because of, um, I think because the new music being written has a broader appeal somehow, or people are really more engaged with the world, and that is exciting to me because certainly when I was studying, it was quite a narrow um, focus. But I think you you're also quite open to the that that not just things that you write down can be music, right? You know, there's oh, just yeah. noise oh, yeah. is as valid as sound if you know what I mean yes definitely Uh, and with I was thinking that when we rehearsed we rehearsed at Trinity for in Birmingham I remember getting lost because I went to Trinity Laban and we were actually rehearsing in Greenwich and then I was nearly late for the for the rehearsal in Birmingham and Ollie Wilson very wittily said did you go to Birmingham Laban by mistake (laughs) and I remember that, but it may it just but by, by by way of getting to talking about teaching, which is something that you do at Trinity and I think at Cambridge as well. Trinity Royal College, Leeds College of Music. I've had to scale back a lot. Um, I find um, I really love my students and they love me and I keep in touch with them as friends. Um, um, I think as a composer, you, say in the ballet world, um, that's a very 
not hand me down. Things are handed down. So if you if you're learning a role, you you the person who did that role before thirty years, twenty years ago, will come and teach you that role. There's a sense of there's a sense of uh, continuum. Do you know what I mean? It goes round and round. Um, so my main job in teaching composing is honestly is to encourage and to to give permission. That's that's my main job, I'd say. Because usually anybody wanting to be composed, they, they they sort of know what they want to do, and I can just lead them up, you know, suggest certain things for their technique. Or I think the number one thing about being composed is to really have um, to develop your you know your critical listening ear. That's the number one thing. And when you start a piece, do you sit down with a piece of paper, or do you sit down at a piano? Do you sit down and hit something, or what's what's the first thing you do? Oh, is, it, is it never the same? Never quite the same. I have a piano here. I'll tell you, it's so out of tune that I don't know why I persist with it. But um, have you seen my film about the piano being moved to the lighthouse? I have to send no. you that. Oh, great. So, I'd love to see that. Oh. Um, sometimes it's a feeling, you know. So the, the I've just written a piece for Theobo and Viola da Gamba. And I just thought, I can feel this piece, but I don't know how to get into it. I had the title and everything. And I thought, I just don't know how. And I thought, you're just going to have to start somewhere so I started with some and it, it didn't really go to it sounded a bit it sounded a bit trite but then I made something of it uh so sometimes you have pieces like that that are very tricky and other pieces that just sometimes you just burst out with something and it's you know it's there you can hear it um and, and when um, do you I, I think it must be difficult to know when something's finished is it do you are you a, yeah. do you constantly go back and tinker or do you do you just say well it's twelve o'clock on Thursday I'm done with this piece now and hand it over yeah well I used to be very bad at delivering things on time when I started out but now I sometimes think um, I like a deadline but I do understand that that you that the finishing process is very important so I wrote something yesterday and I thought right uh, you've got a day to, you know couple of hours to write this scene I wrote the scene and I worked really hard that right that's done but see then I come back this morning and then you play it through and you think oh no no just tiny things a subtle shift in rhythm a change their harmony there tiny little things that actually add up I always feel music should feel considered not just careless so so I looked at that do you ever go back to pieces that you wrote 20 years ago and want to change them or change them are they I mean do they still believe no. you even? I, I mean, maybe maybe your publisher wouldn't let you change things. No. Sometimes I think you can make things clearer. So sometimes you think, oh, I, maybe that dynamic change, oh, maybe that should be changing rhythm. But but then when I observe people playing things, I, I don't want scores to be oh, sort of dense with instructions. You want to leave room for the player too. But I, no, I, I, I actually have no time to go back. There's some pieces I'm longing to get transcribed onto the Sibelius program like I can judge with percussion orchestra but I've got no time I I'm writing too much I think I'm like I've never been in this situation where you just you know you know each piece that's ahead of you and the thing is you're already thinking you know thinking about those pieces to come so you're always fascinated in what you're writing now and what's to come uh, but also several times in a week somebody will ask me a question about an old piece so you're always engaged with them but I wouldn't fundamentally change them and no. you, you mentioned you're writing operas do you always get a libretto and start work on it then or are you doing things 
outside of the libretto before you get it or I, I don't what's is it all oh, a different process every time I don't know yeah different and depending on the team so Dido's goes which I'd say one of the happiest teams I've worked with we knew we wanted to do this up for 10 years ago Wesley Stace and I and Dunedin consort but we only got the green light uh end of 2019 and then it was going going to be going on in yeah this June so that was no time because I already had stuff in the dive but John Buck kept so you know it would have been simmering away somewhere and somehow that piece was quite easy to write uh like Wesley and I seemed to we were on the same page there's something very whereas I have to say there are other operas I've struggled with um I think I think that libretto is really crucial and sometimes I find it hard to explain to librettos what it is I need and so say for librettos is a playwright they'll write a play and I think oh I don't really want to write a play, you know, lots of prose, and then if somebody's a just a poet. They might not be so good at the um, the dramaturgy. They might not be so good at the plotting of it, and so it's. But I would say each each writer I work with brings something different out of me. It's funny. Uh, I was listening to an interview with Elton John yesterday, who said that he 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 can't write a song until he's got all the words. They they complete, they totally shape the way he he does yeah. it. And actually, one of the other interviews I did was with David Arnold, who's worked with Don Black for a very long time and he says that like he'll get lyrics from people but when you get Don's lyrics you can read them and they sound just like good lyrics but then you sing them and they're so cleverly designed to be sung you realize there's yes. much more going on than just a few nice words yes. together but they're actually the shape of the mouth and the, yes the it all works you know that, I'm so excited to say that. You know, I've met David Arnold. I love him. Isn't he yeah, lovely? You, you must have worked together at um, at the Olympic Games. Did you cross over? Because he did the. the yeah. So the, I, I was. I was. Um. I'd written oh two pieces of that opening. One big massive choral thing with orchestra, and then a piece uh, so, solo. So, you know, so there's part of orchestra. But the thing with the, the chorus, we'd made this demo of it and we went into air studios to record it with, you know, LSO and choir. And then we were just so up against the clock. But David Arnold came in and sat in and he said, you got to be honest, that demo sounded shite, didn't it? Because it did. It was just like four singers singing and it. it was just awful. And it's the piano and it everybody hated it. But when we were there with the orchestra, he kept saying to me, oh, my God. How did you do that? How because that thing, that thing from going from piano to full orchestra. But he was he was a piece called Principia, and he just kept on about he couldn't believe you know the demo, the piano demo, and then the real thing. Oh, he's a lovely man. Um, I wanted to ask you. I wish you sort of touched on it. I was going to say, what advice would you give to a young composer starting their career now? But you've sort of answered that. There is something else I would say. I really would say because I think it's possible to build quite a good career on. Uh, lots of PR, you know, some, you know, lots of branding. But I would, I still say, stay very, very close to the music and pay great attention to um, to really, it sounds really fuddy-duddy, but to really refining what it is, whatever message it is, really re refining. Don't be satisfied with, you have to learn to be your own, you know, friendly, but but quite a firm critic just so that you can keep developing because that's the only thing that will sustain a career really is your your you know your sense of uh being in charge of your own uh continue it's a continual development so you have to take charge of that and try and give yourself what you need for that and very lastly what would you say to yourself when you were i don't know 15 17 
Would you? Oh, uh, I, I would say be brave. Just be brave. Actually, I was brave, wasn't I? Isn't that funny? <laughs> oh my God. No, but I could have got started so much sooner. I was so shy. I didn't know. You know that thing where you know nobody in music, and then you. I remember thinking, how do I get into this music? Well, I had no idea. I had no idea how you did it. So, but it just takes a piece, you know, a piece working with a group of musicians, and then there's another piece, then there's another, and you make friends, and then that's how it grows. I don't think there is a way, is there? You just being good's not enough because no one has ever heard of you. You 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 just have to jump in and see if there's anyone else there who's interested. It's yeah. tough. But look, I'm glad you're so busy. This is a good thing, right? It's good. But you worry. You think, oh, I've got to keep the standards up. E. I tell you something. When you, you know the early years when nobody knows you, and you, those are kind of luxury years because you you can you know you experiment and you can. But I feel I feel a great sense of responsibility now. You know, maybe because of my students and everything. But I feel there's a standard in music making, whatever sort of music making that is. There's something you sort of you know you know when you hear excellence or you see excellence. I feel. I must keep aspiring to that somehow. I think you're succeeding. Oh, I'm trying. Long may it continue. <laughs> um, look, thank you so much, Erin. Pleasure, Tom. Hope it's not too long till I see you again. Thanks for joining us. That was the lovely Erin Wallen. In the show notes, there's a playlist of Erin's music, which will be handy for those of you less familiar. There's some really interesting stuff in there. Do listen again. I'll be updating every couple of weeks. Until then, take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.